Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. Few topics have captivated society for longer than visual art, the origins of which can be traced to the formative years of the human race. The styles and techniques that have influenced painters for thousands of years are the source of spirited debate, not just within the art world, but in the scientific world as well. As we mentioned in a previous episode, it's believed that Euclid's theories of vision influenced work in the Renaissance on linear perspective. Today on All Things Photonics, we explore an influence on art beginning in the Renaissance that goes beyond theories of vision and perspective. The Hockney-Falco thesis proposes that certain paintings since the Renaissance contain portions that were designed with the aid of optical projection. The thesis is understandably contentious. However, it's not intended to detract from or minimize artistic skill, but rather to explore the use of optics as an artistic tool. Today we'll be speaking with co-namesake of the Hockney-Falco thesis, physicist Charles Falco, about the roots of the thesis and its impact. Later we speak with Silvia Centeno, Alejandro Manjavakis, and Andrea Schlather about their 2019 paper entitled 19th Century Nanotechnology, The Plasmonic Property of Daguerreotypes. All Things Photonics arrives at the intersection of optics and art. Here is Jake Saltzman with Charles Falco. Your collaboration with David Hockney began around the turn of the century, uh, at least as we know it. Um, at what point in your career before that collaboration did your work in, your, in thin films and photo optics, materials, begin to intersect with what we might consider art? And when I say art, I'm talking photography, painted works, film. Well, it turns out that actually a decade or so ago, I made a video for David that I entitled something like preparing for Hockney, that I went back into my childhood to show things that I had done, that if you had decided, taken a kid at age eight and decided, we're going to prepare this kid to meet David Hockney in 40 years, you couldn't have done a better job. I was very interested in photography from age eight or so, uh, to the extent that my mother for my 10th birthday bought a camera that in today's dollars uh, would be about $400. She was a widowed mother of two school teacher. So $400 was not, you know, trivial dollars. So that sort of is indirect evidence that she recognized that I was serious about photography at that time. So I went on to do infrared photography. I did stop motion videos. When I was in graduate school, I made my own silkscreen apparatus. When I was in junior high, I made an enlarger by taking a bellows camera, inverting it. So I knew enough about optics somehow to know I could do that. So I uh, was in several, Chris Burden, a performance artist, now the late Chris Burden, I was in several of his performance art art pieces and, and helped him with one. I was in one, helped him with one, attended others. So I was peripherally on the edge of the art world, unknown to me. I didn't think of it at the time since a very young age. One of the things, if 20 years ago, you'd asked a broad spectrum of scientists, who is David Hockney? You would have gotten a response from 90% of them, I don't know. 
and I know this because I kind of did a survey at the time. Well, I did know who David Hockney was. And so when I was introduced to him, I knew his level of seriousness as an artist. And so it wasn't just something, you know, I just ignored because, well, you know, somebody's got some crazy idea. So I was prepared for David. The Hockney-Falco thesis is a thesis, right? It, it's it's definitely, it's been bantered and argued about and, and debated and, and the source of great conversation. So it's definitely a thesis and we've defined it for our guests. We did so in the introduction for this episode, but keeping your background, your history in mind, I'd like for you to define it. What does it mean to you, you know, giving particular focus to the optical, but also the cultural significance of it? What we've said, and, and some people can misunderstand this, but what we've said is certain portions of certain paintings by certain artists were prepared with the aid of optical projections, where an artist found optical projections useful, maybe for a complex pattern in a, a clothing that someone's wearing, they would use optics as an aid. Where it wasn't useful, they wouldn't use it. But that's actually a big thing to say that, because what optics does for you, does for anyone, is it takes the very complicated three-dimensional world and reproduces it in two dimensions. And it does impose the tyranny of the lens in imposing it in two dimensions, but suddenly now you have a way as an artist to deal with that. And so beyond the simple Hockney-Falco thesis is the fact that if someone saw an optical projection and saw what it did for them in reducing this complicated world to two dimensions that they could deal with, he just seeing it change their worldview, we would speculate. Now, there's no way to prove these things 600 years after the fact, but people who understand the optics and understand what we've shown as the optical evidence, then the more interesting step is to go a step beyond. And what are the implications of this for people and how it affected their view of the world. I really can't fathom having my name as part of a thesis, um, but I can't imagine some of the, I don't know if debates and arguments is where I want to go with this, but some of the conversations you've had over the years have to be particularly uh, memorable, interesting, vivacious. You know, are there some that come to mind? If when I was in graduate school, a, a major textbook used at the time and still used in solid state physics was written by Charles Cattell. If at the time I was taking solid state physics, you would have told me if you turn to page 97 and there's a figure there and it came from a paper from Charles Falco and we use this figure because it goes up and down and I needed a figure that goes up and down to illustrate a point. I would have thought, fantastic. What more could I hope for to have accomplished as a scientist? So the irony of this is if there was a thesis in molecular beam epitaxy, I mean, that's what I professionally was paid to do. But to the irony of having a thesis named after arguably one of the world's most famous living artists and me in art history, uh, it's just really funny, uh, very gratifying. But something that I do when I give lectures, to to get back to your question you asked, is I'm comfortable giving talks. And so I I can read an audience. If if I say something and I can tell that some fraction of the audience hasn't understood exactly what I said, then I can re-explain it in different words. And so uh, one very memorable time was I gave a talk and then the time, it was a very early talk, my Dean of Art at the University of Arizona 
showed up at this large public lecture. And he was sitting in the front. And during the first third of the lecture, he was shaking his head. He wasn't believing a word that he was hearing. During the second third of the lecture, it was like he had this quizzical look on his face, like this is kind of sinking in. And by the third third of my lecture, he was an enthusiastic supporter. So that's a visual conversation I had with somebody. There's some people who just will go to their grave saying that this cannot be true. An example, when uh, David and I gave a talk very early on at the National Gallery of Art, for at lunch, the director had us in a conference room with his senior curators. And the director went around the room and asked the senior curators, what do you hope to learn today? And one curator said, God bless her for her honesty. I hope to learn that everything they're going to tell us is wrong because these artists were such sheer geniuses that they never would have stooped to using optics. Okay, so if you have kind of a religious conviction against this and you don't understand the optics, there's nothing a conversation is going to do that's going to change your mind. The Hockney-Falco thesis is the principal outcome of an extensive collaboration between recognized leaders from two fields. Brought together by perhaps serendipitous circumstances, Falco and Hockney share a common objective, the truth. It is that shared goal that allowed for the two to produce such valuable insights. This is really a fascinating part of my life with David. And I realize you're dealing with physicists. A perfectly reasonable conversation with a physicist is you explain your theory, and I don't quite understand what you've told me. And um, so I might reply, no, no, that's wrong. And you don't take that as offensive. You just think, well, I need to explain it differently. In polite society, know you're wrong is about as aggressive as you can be. So with David, if he was telling me something, and, I, and if he actually indeed was wrong, well, there's two aspects of this. I would say, no, you're wrong. And here's the real explanation. Well, David is a celebrity, and celebrities are never wrong. I mean, you, one thing about celebrities is, you know, every, anything they say is, is, you know, pearls of wisdom. And so I'm convinced that the reason we became friends and we got along so well is David didn't want to hear, oh, that's a spectacular idea, David. He wanted the truth. I wanted the truth. And so I would say if he said something that was incorrect about optics, I would say, no, that's wrong and explain it correctly. If I said something that was incorrect about artistic understanding, David would correct me. And I wasn't offended. I want to get to the truth. So the fact that we were both interested in this, intellectually interested, and not offended by each other, correcting ourselves, led to just a collaboration that was just uh, incredibly fruitful. The role of a thesis is not to change over time, yet as people evolve, so too can understanding. Defining the Hockney-Falco thesis and understanding it are not necessarily one and the same, and that's what we asked Charles as we concluded our interview. After 20-plus years of collaboration, where does the thesis that bears his name stand in contemporary society? What does the Hockney-Falco thesis mean in 2021? Well, again, if somebody who takes enough time to learn optics 101, to learn a little bit about optics, it really will dramatically change how you look at paintings. And I'll give an example. Some years ago, the uh, Australian National Gallery was shutting down their their gallery for renovations for a couple of years. And so they toured the European paintings. I'd never seen a single one of them. 
they ended up at the Denver Museum of Art, who invited me there to lecture, public lecture on the Hopkins-Falco thesis, which I did. We then took a tour, our self-guided tour of the museum. And you know, I'm, I'm pointing out things, features I see. And I remember very vividly, a woman came back into the room who'd gone ahead to the next room and said, look at this second painting in, in you know, the next room. And that shows this effect that you described. And sure enough, it did. It can be taught in a one hour lecture, what to look for. And, and it excites people to be able to see things. So now, if I can show you how to look for optical evidence, and then you could look at the optical evidence and you understand it enough to know that, yes, that's based on optical projection, but the artist didn't trace it. They changed things. You can, in year 2021, have insight into aesthetic choices made by someone as famous as Jan van Eyck 600 years ago as you walk through a museum. Now, damn if that's not exciting, I think. It's time for the Luminary Minute, a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. This episode will be taking a step back into the 1800s to look at Augustin Jean Fresnel. Born in 1788, Fresnel's name is attached to a number of concepts and commonly used tools in optical science and geometry. Among them, Fresnel equations, Fresnel integrals, and the Fresnel zone. Fresnel's most well-known contribution to the field of optics is likely the Fresnel lens. However, his contributions go well beyond that. Best known for its use in lighthouses, the Fresnel lens's primary advantage is that it reduces the amount of necessary material by dividing the lens into a set of concentric annular sections. In other words, the surface of a conventional lens is divided into a set of concentric surfaces of the same curvature in such a way as to reduce the amount of glass needed to create the lens, and therefore the amount of weight. Referring to its use in lighthouses, the lens has been called the invention that saved a million ships. Beyond lighthouses, it's seen use in telephoto lenses where it was used to reduce the overall weight and size of the lens. They've also seen use in solar cookers, handheld and mounted magnifiers, projectors, and headlight lenses, among other applications. Art and science have evolved alongside one another for as long as humans have been around, or at the very least, as long as anyone can remember. As the two have evolved, there have been points of intersection. Beyond holography and photogrammetry, in photography and videography, is the distinct technique of daguerreotyping. Daguerreotypes, among the oldest photographic images in existence, can be found in museums around the world. These images, which are contained on a mirror-like polished surface, make for fascinating case studies into image resolution and composition. In a 2019 paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a multi-institutional team deployed nanophotonics to unearth the plasmonic properties of daguerreotype images. The paper provided experimental and theoretical analysis on how the material composition, morphology, and dimensions of nanostructures on the daguerreotype surface determine the characteristics of the image. The work delivered a scientific understanding of the optical effects of the artworks and pointed to protocols aimed for their preservation. Three authors of the 2019 paper join us next. Sylvia Centeno, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Andrea Schlother, now with L'Oreal U.S. Research and Innovation, and Alejandro Manjavakis of the Theoretical Nanophotonics Group at the University of New Mexico. The panel discussion opens with Dr. Sylvia Centeno on the impetus for the research 
and the benefit of using plasmatics to investigate the physical properties of the daguerreotypes. Well, from you know, our side, the basic motivation was to better understand the properties of the daguerreotype image, and plasmonics promised to give us a unique perspective, and it did. Also, uh, daguerreotypes are very reactive towards environmental pollutants and contaminants, so learning more about the image properties is uh, it's a crucial step to understand how it interacts with the contaminants to ultimately contribute to improve the methods that we have to conserve and preserve daguerreotypes. This is very important because each daguerreotype is unique and irreplaceable. Andy? Yes. So um, I came to the Met um, after after my PhD, where I studied plasmonics um, and nanophotonics. And I was, as Sylvia uh, mentioned, working with Sylvia to try to understand some of these degradation processes that she mentioned, and due to the fact that these images are so unique and irreplaceable. But I think for this particular project, it kind of grew a life of its own because we were working on the research for a um, for an exhibition on Giraud de Pongy daguerreotypes, and a lot of them uh, they're very unique images, and even comparing daguerreotypes from you know different artists. Every every artist is unique, but these um, have a particular signature where they they have a blue tint to them. They they have a solarization um, to them, and you look at them in person. And and with my background and understanding nanoparticle optics, I just thought, oh my gosh, there's something cool here. You just have to see them in person, and <laughs> you want to understand. Why they are so um, why they're so angle dependent, why their image, the color changes dramatically. And that's, you know, that was highlighted in the paper. So Alejandra was uh, the, the perfect person to help us answer those questions. Yeah, and, and then from my side, it was exactly that. I knew Andy from Ice University where she did the PhD and I, I was a postdoc at that time, and we had several collaborations. And she essentially contacted me. I mean, I really didn't know anything about daguerreotypes before, but it was really, really interesting to actually do, you know, some calculations for a real and historic, I would say, system. Because we, you know, from the theoretical point of view, we always uh, model things not that, you know, can be fabricated in a lab. But in this case, we're actually modeling something that was like kind of uh, hundreds of years old. So it was very, very interesting. As he mentions, work with daguerreotypes was uncharted territory for Manjavakis. As head of the theoretical nanophotonics group at the University of New Mexico, Manjavakis's work involves identifying new physical phenomena in nanophotonics and tailoring applications to exploit those advances. He spoke about his work on all things photonics in Season 2. In 2019, the group was already at work on investigating the physical properties of nanoparticles. With daguerreotypes, the group found its application. From our point of view, what was very interesting about the systems, you know, the daguerreotypes, was this idea of having, at the end of the day, having nanoparticles, you know, metallic nanoparticles that support plasmons sitting on top of a metallic uh, substrate. Just by chance, it happened that at the same time that Andy contacted me, we were actually working on trying to understand, you know, like what happened when you place a nanoparticle on a metal, how, you know, like the response modifies compared with you know, the most standard or the more standard situation where the particle is placed on a, on a dielectric, no, on a transparent substrate. 
So, um, you know, it was really an interesting point because we're kind of working on, on similar things, you know, with, uh, without any kind of like practical application no, in mind, but just for the fun of understanding that. Yes, and there's, um, you know, in the conservation science community um, and, you know, experts that have been focusing on the material science of daguerreotypes for a while, they, there has been a lot of work into understanding the, the composition of the particles and, um, you know, going really deep into the, the process and how the, how the image is formed from a material science perspective. Alejandro, one of the things that came out of our, our first conversation uh, earlier on, on all things photonics was that, look, the work we do here at, at University of New Mexico, it is theoretical, right? Everything about it is theoretical. And that's, there, there's a great inherent joy in that because we get to, you know, I think the word you used was play. Uh, and, and you can feel like that when you're playing with nanoparticles or sort of scrapping the application in favor of just doing the science I'm curious to get your perspective on this, right? This is purely theoretical work. Is that what makes this type of thing so enjoyable for you? Yeah, definitely. And indeed, you know, I, I always joke about the fact that whenever, you know, we publish some result and then, you know, I try to explain that to my mom, usually, you know, she, she's like, okay, well, I don't know what you're doing. And this was one of the first times that actually I could, I could explain her that what I was doing, you know, had some... A uh, very direct real world application, no? and, and in that sense, it's really very interesting for us to be able to to kind of apply all the models and all the understanding that we have on these kind of more academic or if you want more you know simple systems to to real world you know materials and structures, which obviously are are way more complicated, but at the same time are way, way more interesting. We have covered some of the work of the uh, theoretical nanophotonics group at the University of New Mexico in our print publications, recent work with implications for thermovoltaics. Well, I want to get thoughts here. You know, this paper was published July, mid-July 2019, so it's been a little while. I'm curious what you're working on now and whether it's uh, tied to this or not. We'll start with you, uh, Sylvia. Uh, we are. I mean, the, the um, next steps are to uh, continue to look into how the contaminants of the pollutants in the environment uh, interact with the image and see if we can offer some insight in how to preserve them. I mean, what the right environment for those places that are contaminated are or is, and uh, if we can remove those pollutants. I mean, we are, we are far, far away from that still because uh, methods for removing like tarnish and accretions have been proposed and in some cases widely used uh, in the past, not right now. I mean, uh, conservation has evolved, but these, these um, uh, methods have been used without uh, the knowledge that is needed to, uh, you know, uh, be sure that, these, that they are safe uh, in, the, in the short term and in the long term. So there's, there's a lot to do. I mean, this is the, this paper and this work is the first step, as I said. We, we want to look mainly into uh, what sulfur and chlorine-containing contaminants do. These are the, the contaminants that we see more often when we look at 19th-century daguerreotypes. There are many others, but these are the ones that are the most uh, worrisome in a way. This is where we would like to, or we, we are focusing on right now. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. 
Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.